You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 575, a rock memorabilia quiz, the huge price hike of Glastonbury tickets, 50 years of Mastermind, and hooray for Ian Brodie and Trevor Horn. That's all coming up after the vapors and news at 10. but now of an age where the singer works as a lawyer and his son plays lead guitar in the band um, <laughs> from, from 1980. It reached number 44 in the UK, The Vapors and News at 10. 
That's a great choice. And topical as well. We are nothing yeah. if not totally topical <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. But yes, I didn't know that the singer was a lawyer and that his, his mm. son is now the guitarist. That yeah. is, I, I, you know, it happens to us all this time thing, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Thank you very much for joining us for Parish Council episode 575. I'm Terence Stackham and also still recording, touring and working as a lawyer. However, not the singer <laughs> with the vapours. It's Juliet Harris. I mean, you know, I'd I'd lo- I'd be happy to swap, and I'd have a go in like like sort of um not stars in the eyes. There was something where they they used to people used to swap jobs, wasn't there? A, a, a TV oh, yes, job swap yes, thing. Yes, yes, I, yes. I, I not busman's holiday, but something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I quite I quite fancy me being in the vapors and the chap from the vapors <laughs> working in local government. I think that would be that would be a, a great yeah. a great joy. Hello, everyone. Surely there is nothing more like heaven on earth than a parish council quiz. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Belinda uh, Carlyle was singing about that, I think. I think she was. I think that's what she was referring to. I'm delighted to bring such joy uh, to, to Juliet and you, the listener. Our quiz topic is... I mean, you, you are the Marie Kondo of this podcast. You spark joy whenever <laughs> you, you get on the mic. It fizzles out of me in every direction. Um, it's rock memorabilia. Mm. I'm going to tell you about recently auctioned items from the world's leading auction houses. And your simple task, Juliet Harris, is to tell me how much they sold for. Oh, my gosh. Right. Now, okay. It's a kind of quick fire quiz because there's no multiple choice this week because it, it's just a straightforward guess. And if I and my m- massive team of expert adjudicators here think <laughs> you are close enough, you win oh, the wow. Pot. Wow, yeah. I'm once again me and all of our lovely listeners very f- much find ourselves at your mercy. How do we always get here? Yes, well, I'm going to set the bar very low at this. I, I, um, I was going to make this five questions, but I had so much fun compiling Ooh. it that it's ten questions. It's a super sore away pull out edition of the it, quiz. It really this is week. ten questions, but I'm only going to ask you to get three right to win the star Ooh. prize because I'll be honest with you here. If it's I had hard. taken this quiz, I would have got zero. It's really I mean, that's, surprising that's what things go for. So yes, yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Um, well, you know, you, you you can't do worse than me. Let's put it that way. Um, so if you get three right, you win the star prize, which is an autographed piece of toast that looks a bit like Bob Dylan. I mean, what can I say? I, uh, I, my love of Bob Dylan has been well documented on this podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, I am keen on toast though, so maybe maybe that's the way to approach this. Question one. Mm. Juliet Harrison listeners. In 2015, Ringo Starr sold his personal copy, pressing number 00000001. Oh, he got w- one then. Brilliant. OK. <laughs> he did. Of the White Album. Ringo Starr sold his personal copy of the White Album in 2015. How much did it sell for at auction? <sighs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'm going to find this tricky. I think. All of the answers um, in dollars, please. Okay, fine. Um, in which case, sorry, that didn't mean to sound as, as grumpy as it did. Um, no, let me think. Right. I think that sold for. Let, let's go for a round number. Let's go for a million dollars. I'm going to give you it seven hundred ninety thousand dollars. Oh wow! I mean, so that's I a you, lot of money, isn't that was it? A very good guess. Yes. Um, it is. And do, do you know, I was thinking uh, on, this, on a purely practical level, unless you've got so much money that you don't know what to do with it. What are you going to do with Ringo Starr's personal yes. copy of the White Album? Are you going to play it? Are you going to frame mm. it? You yes. know, I mean, I would. Uh, yes, it's, it's probably frame it. 
probably and yeah. and I'd probably frame it and then buy the cd in the next sale at hmv <laughs> is probably what i would do but then if i was going to approach on that basis i wouldn't be paying seven hundred and ninety thousand no. dollars for for that i i mean yeah it's 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 rich people invest it's investment yeah, bankers that still think they're cool isn't it really that's a that's a that's a 58 year old investment banker that bought that <laughs> question two september the 10th 2021 oh, okay just over a year ago yes the wu-tang clans <laughs> once upon a time in shaolin cd was was sold to the crypto collective at auction pleaser dao only one copy oh, of yes, this cd this. do you remember this story i only remember one the copy story was ever yes. produced. yeah how much was it sold for i was going to say there is a detail to this story that i don't remember which was the price um mm. and again we're in dollars aren't we um dollars, all in dollars four hundred thousand dollars four million dollars <gasps> Oh my Again, gosh. can you imagine? That's I'm not insane. giving you that. No, 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 nor should you. But that yeah. is that is mental. I, 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 I sort of before I saw the the um, the answers. This I in my I'd gone for about five thousand dollars on this. Mm. So it shows how mad I was on that. Question three, 2018. This is an interesting one. A George Harrison owned and used and worn two-piece wool. Pinstripe suit sold at auction at Bonhams in London. How much in dollars? George Harrison's suit owned it, worn it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I sense I will not do well at the rest of this mm. quiz. But um, as I say, you've only got three to win because I think it is really hard. Hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Only twenty five thousand. Now you see, I like wow. you. I went mm. way over the top on that mm. one. You just can't tell with these things. No, no. Um, question four. In twenty fifteen at Julien's auction house, lot three hundred and two, the Beatles' White Album again. This time, just an ordinary copy, but signed by Paul McCartney. How much for the Beatles' White Album, but signed by Paul McCartney? Um, I feel like I'm at school, Terence. So, yes. what, what, so what, what happened to your multiple uh, choice? That's, all, that's up, my first question. Straight. Well, I, I thought know. I could um, do multiple choice, but I thought um, it, it would be sort of a bit too narrow. It might be become a little bit too obvious because if I said like, yeah, for yeah, the, the, no, fair you enough, know, the Ringo Starr um, thing, one dollar, um, ten hundred million dollars, or or whatever it was, seven hundred million dollars. Yeah, yeah it's it'd be fair too enough. easy to give away. Yeah, I know this I'm is gonna, very hard. I'm, I'm going to work on the basis that if it isn't the the first numbered one had a sort no, of it's a special it's just an ordinary copy. This mm. didn't. Um, okay, so I will say five hundred thousand dollars. Five hundred thousand, one thousand two hundred and eighty. Oh wow! Okay, isn't that amazing? Fine. There's so That's many nice. of them, George. Yeah. I learned this week. I then started oh, researching. I I thought, well, you know, are there lots of these on the market? And you would be amazed if you search for signed copies of Beatles albums, but signed only by Paul McCartney. There's loads of them. Fab. Um, okay. And and you know they they all uh, sell for around this. I saw another wow. one sold. Uh, well, so so actually realistically, you know, if you or I fell into a little bit of money, we could probably mm. get one, couldn't we? That's really we interesting. We I could. did not know that. The f the last six questions are all from uh, Julian's auction house um, auction twentieth of May twenty twenty two. So just okay. earlier this year. Fine. And you've got one that I've given you so far out of the four we've had. So so, so hard bars. You've only you've only got to get three to get that Bob Dylan um, toast. 
Bruce Springsteen, The River Tour, stage worn leather boots. Come on, listener. Come on, Juliet. Sit up straight. What you got? $5,000. I'm going to give you that $2,800. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I nearly went a little lower, actually, but yes, fine. Okay. This is a weird one. All, All again from May this year from this auction. Beach Boys, band signed, keeping the Summer Alive album. This one I got so woefully wrong, I'll tell you in advance, that uh, it, it made my eyes water when uh, I saw this, whether it's one way or the other. $90,000. $512. Oh, wow. I mean, that's just okay. ridiculous. That's mad, isn't it? That's that, that someone's got themselves a bargain there. Well, they certainly have. I, I just I, I will probably later go and look at this in greater detail because is it signed by Brian Wilson? I mean, it's got to be to be called the Beach Boys. It's got to be signed by Brian Wilson. But I'm wondering if you know, the, all the other signatures are sort of like Blondie uh, Chaplin and, the, you know, the bl- bloke mm. on drums or something. Yeah, $512. That's mm. amazing. Bette Midler, the Divine Miss M signed album. $800. Going to give you that 125. Oh, okay, fair enough. That's generous. You know, it's much, much yeah. lo- again. I would have thought, yes. oh, you know, some several thousand for that 125 dollars. Mm. Um, so you've reached your three. Oh, excellent! Look for, looking forward to snacking on Bob. That will be great. Indeed, three to go. A Johnny Cash owned and stage played 1956 acoustic guitar with bizarrely NFT, a non fungible token oh, thrown in. God. It's going to say, oh, the NFT is going to bomb it up, isn't it? Uh, um, maybe it will. $110,000. Not going to give it to you. $437,500. Oh, OK. But it just goes to show that whether or not you agree with the pricing, how NFTs affect things, doesn't it? Because yes. I bet if I didn't have the NFT attached, that would be a lot less. I, you're probably right. Two to go. The Eagles. Joe Walsh signed Telecaster guitar. $900. Oh, I'm going to give you that's very good. 1,600. You Ooh. see, I went massive. I was mm. saying like 50, 7,500,000, $1,600. I mean, this is getting that. easier as it goes along because the more you hear, the <laughs> yeah, more exactly. you have a general sort of landing pad, it, don't absolutely. you? Absolutely. But it's so surprising because to me, the things that I thought would go for a fortune, like the Beach Boys signed thing, mm. $512. And then the things that you think, oh, they're not worth very much, you know, go for an absolute bomb like the Weird. Thing. absolutely and again yeah. that's the that's the it's because it's the only one and also is there an nft style dimension no, to that? i suppose so day. yes yes last one jules now, okay let's is, give it a go i found Come this the most interesting one of all and i'll mm. also tell you afterwards what the pre-sale estimate was well, go on from the collection of dot jarlett who was the housekeeper at kenwood st george's hill waybridge Ooh, yes a Hona brand harmonica stolen from a Hamburg music shop by John Lennon and played <laughs> through the early 60s on stage and record. Well, I suspect that I'll be massively wrong in either direction on this, depending on where I plump for. I'm going to go for $250,000. Not giving it to you. 43750 Ah, fair enough. But wait for this. And again... I, I too went for you. I went. Mm. I think I said. I think I went for a, a quarter of a million. Um, so forty-three thousand seven hundred fifty dollars. The estimate was two to three thousand. 
Oh, that's interesting. That's odd? really so interesting. I found that a really sort of rather interesting topic because it is it, rather. It, 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 Nothing went for what I expected it to do. No. And the ones that I thought were going to go low went high. The ones I thought were high went low. Very, I, very strange business. I wonder if there's a, there's a there's a point to this, which which perhaps we haven't touched on. So I had an experience where I was very kindly gifted um, a record by a, friend, by a good friend of mine. who She said, I think you'd like this in your correct connection, collection. It's the, the first Pretenders album. Mm. And it is signed by all of the pretenders including the original lineup three of whom are now dead Um, and and she had it signed when they were on tour i think and i which she's like can you get it valued for me so i spoke to my friends that that run well on flutter Mm. records and they basically said that in terms of signed items nowadays and memorabilia there is an incredibly high threshold for proof that it is genuine and they Mm. said unless you've got a certificate of authenticity unless you've got photographic evidence of her having it signed it's not worth much more than it is just as a record because it is almost impossible to prove without that that it is genuine so i wonder if some of these these items the items that went for more than others mm. did they have certificates of authenticity well, certainly is there the a dot charlotte one did the, the harmonica yes. one did um dot charlotte and her son i think she's now oh. no longer with us but her son yeah um, signed a certificate of, of authenticity yes. saying that he had um been a young boy and seen yes. you know his mum had given it to him yeah, in 1964 exactly. or something and do you know what you're saying that's such a good point because i was wondering you know the the one that we both would have got woefully wrong the beatles white album signed by paul mccartney paul mccartney's signature is so easy to forge and all you'd need to do with the white album particularly with it being white is trace paul mccartney's uh signature off a genuine copy um and then put that tracing paper over yeah, you know, a, a second-hand copy mm. that you bought in 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 a in your well and mm. flutter or whatever. Yeah, and exactly. Just mimic, mimic the signature; it'd be so easy to exactly. do. Exactly, and this is where. So I I am an owner an owner of an increasingly large amount of signed PJ Harvey stuff, mm. and I have. So I have something I bought years ago and then I've got something now that I didn't spend a lot of money on the thing that I bought years ago. But but I've I've got a number of things now that that are signed by PJ Harvey. There are you can tell the difference between the forged PJ Harvey signature and the genuine PJ Harvey signature. So I've got one of 300 of the signed uh, demonstration albums that were at the start of the reissue campaign. But if they come from her as a source. Yes. From her website. So, so, so all of the ones from her website yes. match each other. But and how do you know if bought... you're on eBay? How do you know that it's yes. PJ Harvey? And, and and the thing that I bought from eBay about 15 ah. years ago does not match any of those ah. signatures. I didn't pay enough that I'm annoyed about it, but you know what I mean. It's there's yeah. there's you know. It's, so if you are a hardcore fan of particular people, mm. it, you, it, and it's not a question of it's been forged badly. It's a completely different signature to the way that the way that she signs. So so it's. Right. It's it's interesting, isn't it? It's um and it and and that's why I think so. The PJ Harvey record that I bought, the signed one, I bought from her website um for thirty eight pounds in May twenty twenty. I think it was. I, I remember 
in the first lockdown sitting in it might be june 2020 sitting in my parents back garden and getting a text saying get on that website now <laughs> um and the last time that i looked um on discogs and ebay for sort of signed versions mm. well firstly you can't get them now so i think people have started hanging on to them and secondly because i have one you can check the authenticity mm. of them and the genuine ones seem to be going for about 325 wow. to 350 quid that's now. That's in, I mean, isn't that yeah. mad, isn't it? I mean, it's almost it's almost a thousand percent rise, isn't it? If you sure think the is, rise yeah. 38 quid is, it's it's mad. So so it's um yeah, it's wow. it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, it it made me realize I wish I still had Elton John's jacket that I had when I was a oh, teenager. Oh god. When when I was about 15 my friend's mother opened a charity shop and um my my pal was mm. 17, uh, a little bit older than me. He drove his mum's van around trying to collect jumbles or bric-a-brac for her new charity shop. Mm. Uh at very early so I think 70 71. Yes. And one day I went with him and we went to the Wentworth estate mm. in Virginia Water, came across this house called Hercules. And it was a big stone in the garden that had yes. Hercules inscribed on it. Rang the bell at the forbidding gate and an electrician working on the house came and uh, asked us what we wanted. And we said we were looking for stuff for charity. Yes. And he went and got this lady who gave us tons of stuff. We filled the van. Wow. Tons of stuff. And she said to me, I think it was definitely in winter because I remember it was very darkish and i was probably just mm. in a shirt or t-shirt and she said oh you look very cold hold on and um she came back and gave me one of her son's jackets and she was elton john's mother oh, um, wow. who he lived with wow. at the time and um she said oh you know elton said that you can have this uh, this this jacket yes. it was a oh, lovely jacket it was nice. black and it had like silver thread woven through it like glittery silver thread it was absolutely lovely but of course oh, well first of all i wouldn't even be able to get an arm in it now never mind be able to get it uh over yes. my expansive uh body but um i, don't <laughs> I mean we're all there Terrence, don't now. worry yeah <laughs> but well, i'd be I mean, interested to know what that would have gone for but it did yeah. make me think also i mean with, with you know with your growing um sense of stardom in your life have you got some <laughs> t-shirts or socks you could say, put up people, on all people are very welcome to my english bobble hat that i bought yeah. um I, and i'm not calling it england i'm calling it english because i realized when i bought an england bobble hat at the at uh, the football the other week as an emergency purchase because it was so wet um yeah. and cold that uh, i had in fact become a walking fall lyric in your english bobble hat from uh, ah. the number two so maybe that will acquire some future value i sense you're being as always supportive to the point of being over optimistic <laughs> when it comes to my uh comes to my life but equally in a kind of a a, a sort of six degrees of separation Hmm. thing I once spent a couple of winters in Roger Daltrey's daughter's coat um, because, again, we had a friend that that, that said, oh, that lived in the, um, I think it's Hawkehurst they lived at. There was a fish farm mm. out there, famously. And uh, they said, oh, um, their neighbours had been giving away some old clothes they didn't want anymore. And was I interested? And mm. it was only later that this very nice, quite expensive coat that I spent a, win- a couple of winters in had belonged to Roger Daltrey's daughter. So, um, oh, so again, I sense that might not have had value, but who knows? Oh, it, it, it was a sort of uh, substitute uh, coach. Yeah. Then. Oh, very good. Um, four out of ten, you did very well. You did very, well, thank very, you very well. much. Your marking was rather generous, but um, well done, <laughs> everybody. I suspect, I suspect the listeners at home did better than me. There's been one or two major stories in the UK this week, as we know. But yes, it, I was going to say, some, you know, it's, it's, nothing's happened really, has it? In the world of arts and music, the news that um, 
tickets for the Glastonbury Festival are due to rise mm. in 2023 by an eye-watering 19%, 19%, to £340. And Emily Evis said, and I'm quoting now, we tried very hard to minimise the increase, but we're facing enormous rises in the costs of running this vast show. Um, end of quote. And actually, when I wrote it down her quote, I actually wrote down running this vest show, which would be an entirely different <laughs> experience altogether but that was the field of las vegas wasn't it when it existed (laughs) be something altogether different now um there may be an argument that if you had 270 pounds in spare money last year you possibly have 340 quid for next year but here's my economic strategy uh call me call me rishi because for glastonbury and other businesses in the uk but mainly for the evises Instead Mm. of the almost automatic response of raising the cost, why not trim back a little? Book Mm. fewer bands, start the day a little later, reduce the number of stages. Yes. Tough call, but maybe donate a little less to the charities. Ask maybe for people with spare cash that have got some extra money to give a little more voluntarily to charities. Find ways that don't automatically mean an increase for the festival goer. In other words, trim the costs, Jules. And and actually, that's an interesting point, because what that basically says to people. I, yeah, I agree with I, 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 I think this is a good point that you've made. And actually, I wonder if the way forward on this again, because Glastonbury's always been in it. They've always tried to make Glastonbury a kind of a people powered experience rather than a corporate festival, even though Glastonbury is a very different beast to, to what it originally was. And actually what it was pre fence, that seemed to be the mm. sort of the, the big change, didn't it? Sure. Um, it it's yet yeah, it's somehow managed to remain not corporate. It hasn't gone down the route of Reading and Leeds and other places by being mm. corporately sponsored. It's it still very much gives Oxfam and WaterAid prominence, which I really much admire. On that basis, maybe there should have been some sort of consultation launched a few months ago to say, look, it's like this. Costs are rising. And I think that's absolutely honest. That's a genuine thing. Mm. In my work life, mm. I, I work on various projects and we had a team meeting on a, on a project recently in which the project manager outlined the increase in a construction costs. It's a large house building project and uh, the construction costs had gone up. 40% over the space of five months, which we were just Gosh, sort of, terrifying. and this that was a mix of of materials and a lack of labour, but um, which I suspect also will be relevant to relevant to Glastonbury, I think, in terms of constructing the stages and getting people to construct stages, free movement of artists, all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying the Evenesses aren't right about that. They all, you know, they almost certainly are in my experience. But maybe they should have launched a consultation to say, look, it's like this: production costs have gone absolutely through the roof. We've got you've got two choices here. You can either pay more for the same experience. Or you can pay a bit less, but you'll have to make your peace with the fact that there will be less. There will be less fields. There'll be a, there'll be a, a sort of a, a sort of a, a reduced experience, really. And your thing about trimming back, and I think it talks to the idea that there is a sense, I think, particularly of the sort of people that go to Glastonbury now. And for years, it's been the, a more expensive end. I mean, mm. admittedly, it's a much bigger festival than other festivals, but mm. it's been the more the more expensive end. It's sort of become the gold star of British festivals, hasn't it, really? And the, the reality is, if you want a bigger experience, you have to pay more. But I wonder if they they sense that, that it has become really quite middle class, Glastonbury. You can't say, isn't it, really? I know some of my, my, my friends in the state 
writers that have gone, the boss of the law firm that I used to work for went to Glastonbury. It has become a little bit, like I said about the, you know, the, the fictional investment banker that would have mm, that mm. would have bought that that thing earlier. Mm. There is a little bit of people that are incredibly square trying to prove that they're still cool. And that's not true of everybody that goes to Glastonbury. There is, but there is the increasing subset of that. And and I, I, won, I wonder if the Evises are wise to that and they realise that those people are very entitled and that they don't want to accept a reduced experience and therefore they are willing to pay more. But all this does is is price out people that that the sort of people that once would have been Glastonbury's core audience that just simply can't afford to go and I I absolutely understand the dilemma they're in but I think if they'd launched consultation of the two options being same same experience more money or slightly reduced experience but less Mm. ticket I would have been interested to see which way people would have fooled them. I think you're absolutely right in in sort of um inferring that Glastonbury has become a sort of national treasure I think that's that's certainly right sort of it's an icon of the year like Easter and World Cups and bank holidays it's a sort of staging point in the year and it was and it was very telling that during lockdown the the first lockdown the BBC ran Glastonbury Glastonbury of the past for for three or four days like they usually people couldn't live without it and and actually everyone I knew some of whom weren't that interested in Glastonbury. Everyone I knew said how massively uplifting and cheery mm. they found it, that they could just watch all these performances and just watch lots of people together experiencing joy. There are a lot of people that clearly really mm. missed that communal experience. And there are a lot of people that was, I mean, I found it so uplifting, uh, you know, in a time of nothingness. It was beautiful to have that back, actually. But despite that status, I don't think it is of such uh, a status that its modus operandi can't be questioned and living within Mm. means is is a sensible strategy. Although, having said what we both said, um, I I suspect, uh, fully appreciate, it'll sell out at the even higher ticket price. So you know, I mean, there'll still pro- be 300,000 people or however many it holds but it'd be interesting willing to, to pay see, it. But it'd be interesting to see what those people look like, where those people are from, what professions be, those yes. people are from, from what it'll class those class people, people are from. Yes. I suspect so. Yes. Coming next, 50 years of mastermind and no passes. That's right <laughs> after Joyce Sims. Find the love within I came back 
death of Joyce Sims who's one of those people that's never been never been big big but yeah has always been a sort of a a, a presence around and I think everybody I know was, was genuinely very sad to hear of her passing um I wasn't aware shamefully until she passed that she had very recently released this um this this cover version um earlier this year apparently which I found on when looking for a Joyce Sims track to pick um it's very smooth sailing adjacent this which is mm, why I why I was quite keen to pick it it's um it's her covering what you won't do for love and I think that's a lovely version and R.I.P. Joyce Sims I knew come into my life but not this one yes. and it's a lovely track as you say and she was only 63 which is, uh, is a it's no age track. really is no. it yes I'm very sorry to hear we know that uh, anytime we talk about uh, quiz type shows, we are in the presence of the queen of the <laughs> genre. Really not true. I've never won anything, for goodness sake. Anyway. What? That's, well, you were Victor Ladorum on a quiz show on BBC Radio 2. Oh, yes, three that's true. That's oh, true. That's true. I, I mean, it won nothing on TV, though, which is, no, you, which is the arena we're going to discuss. You starred on Eggheads, though you didn't win it. Um, it's only a matter <laughs> of time before you, you, you <laughs> reign supreme another, on another of these quizzing shows. Now, we've just reached the 50th year year of the BBC quiz show Mastermind with its most recent presenter taking over last year, becoming mm. the fifth presenter in its 50-year history. All of them have been men, worth noting. Mm. Um, we we watched the edition broadcaster uh, this week, but just before before coming on to that, Jules, I want to ask you, with your expertise on quizzes, about <laughs> an aspect of Mastermind, and it will include a spoiler about this week's edition that's just been broadcast this last yes. week, that means as... as as well as quite enjoying the show, I also find it incredibly irritating and excluding. And Fair that enough. is 
the specialised subject round. Firstly, mm. it cuts down the interaction with the viewer to almost zero. One contender this week chose as her subject the life of Elizabeth Woodville, who was yes. married to King Edward IV in the mm. 15th century. Now, there's 99% of the audience disenfranchised because, <laughs> you know, nobody knows about Elizabeth Woodville. Secondly, and my main beef, mm. three of the four contenders took questions on the life of a person. Fair enough. Mm. A broad brush for sure. But the fourth and youngest contender, Holly, chose questions about a TV series called Ghosts Mm. that has run for a total of 26 30-minute episodes, Mm. therefore a total of 13 hours to research against full lives of Marie Mm. Curie, Banksy and Elizabeth Woodville. That's just not fair, Jules. Well, it's interesting this. So, so I've I've been through the process of applying for Mastermind a couple of times, and there's been I will apply again at some point, I suspect. Mm. But there's been a kind of a cha- a bit of a change, in I don't know what the rule is now, but where I fell down previously was agreeing specialist subjects because. There has to be, I fell down in the past because there weren't enough agreed references on the subjects that I wanted to do, by which we mean published books. And maybe mm-hmm. that is why there's been a, there's firstly, there's been a move towards lower brow subjects being mm-hmm. accepted or rather more popular culture subjects being accepted. And 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 secondly, it's, 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 so you have to be able to set on agreed sources. And one thing you would say about, um, about, a television program compared to a life of someone is that you do at least have you've got the episodes that you can refer to so that is your that is your thing that you can agree to having said that when you're talking about a life of someone I think the previous rule was you had to have four sources that you could refer to so actually it might be that for example if you wanted to do the novels of Jane Austen I nearly got that through one year but someone else had done it you can only do a subject if it hasn't been done within two years of your episode Mm. so that's the kind of the rule but with the novels of Jane Austen you have got six novels to read or seven if you count if you count Lady Susan Um, and so actually it might well be in the case of the life of whoever that that person said okay then I've got four biographies to read so I've got four books to read so maybe when you think about boiling a life down into sources it's not it's not such a wider step as it is towards watching someone did line of duty when my friend was on last season mm. uh, one of her components and and that was seven full seasons I think or six full seasons so actually you could say well there was much there was more in that I, I agree that a program which has not been on very long having said that there was quite a deep level of detail and it all depends how it's written Terence it all depends mm. how how what how the depth of the details that you want from something so saying that what in wanting where someone is born is a relatively straightforward fact wanting to know the name of a particular or the punchline of a particular joke in one episode is perhaps perhaps a, a, a greater level of detail in a way I don't know but I agree that when you see subjects on together, I sometimes wonder if it might not be better to have everybody doing a TV series on the same programme, everybody yes. doing the life of somebody yeah. in the same episode. And maybe that might be a fairer comparison. But again, that's something you can tweak in the way that you write things. And to use a, a horrible sort of cliche from the world of quiz that I'm in with a capital Q, how mm. you clue something. So so mm. the clues that you put in a question can make a difference as to its level of detail and therefore its level of difficulty. That's a very good point. Uh, content, you know, competing with like with like is a very good point.
point. One of the significant changes to, to Mastermind in the last year is that in appointing Clive Myrie as Clive. Yeah, dear old Clive, Clive, slightly more relaxed element to the yes. questioning. He's such a thoroughly nice man, isn't he? That you feel yeah. he wants the contenders to succeed. I say yes. slightly more relaxed, in, not him, he is relaxed, but slightly more yeah. relaxed in terms of the tone of the program because we still have that doom laden oh, music. Exactly. And exactly and and it's the it's the and interestingly and sorry to sound so sort of not exactly name droppy but program droppy here but when when we filmed eggheads eggheads is pretty much filmed as live they get through five to six episodes a day of that in filming it's such i think when i spoke about it, i think i spoke about it on the podcast mm. it's such a slick process and we were told we sat around for hours on end it was like being in a rock band as a was it Char- charlie said charlie from the Brooks, rolling yeah. stones yeah that being in a rock being in a rock band for 25 years is five years of playing and 20 years of sitting about and actually mm. it, comparatively we were sat in as after we'd done makeup we were sat across lunch for about three hours i think mm. um and then we were told once we were once we were called into the studio that it would go very quickly an episode of eggheads is 30 minutes long um we were called down to the studio at two minutes past two and I bought around in the pub at three o'clock. So, <laughs> so it really was. <laughs> and, and Jeremy Vine is a very smooth man and I had to do a few pickups where he stumbled a bit, but mostly it was very quick. And actually it was quite a, for all that it was quite a scary thing we were quite relaxed throughout most of it the point at which i was the most stressed was when we were sat in the studio and we were all set up and they go right we're gonna go now right three two one the lights went down and the music blared out in the studio and mm. that was the point the point at which the program is starting and here is this slightly intense music there mm. must be composers for things i wonder if there are specialists in quiz music that are able <laughs> to sum up that kind of the mix of light entertainment but also extreme tension that can come so yeah so i think if i was on mastermind the point at which would be really stressful is not answering the questions because that's what you're there to do isn't it that's what you've prepared yourself to do and clive did give a kind of opening monologue where he was like and i thought he laid it on a bit thick actually mm. you know the tension of the music yeah. in the black jail that was very good i enjoyed clive's shakespearean moment during that but um <laughs> but yeah it was it was yeah that is the most stressful aspect of it i think and also if you're i had a friend that, that that went on a couple of years ago who was quite a smallly proportioned person and she said there was a brief moment when she sat in the chair where she thought she might not ever be able to get out of it because <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I don't think her feet touched the floor she was tiny so um so yeah it's um it's it's but it's interesting what you say about the um mm. the specialist subject round alienating the viewer that's an interesting point mm. i actually quite like having them because mm. where i think it it's quite good I mean, there even amongst quiz shows, there are sort of the more serious and the more and I, you know, by the way, apologies for using the term low brown early because I know that it has connotations as does high brown. Oh. That's why that's why people try not to use this in the world of quiz anymore. But oh, right. there is there is I suppose there is the more serious end of quiz and there's the more lightweight end of quiz. So you would put university challenge at the serious end of quiz, I suppose, and you would put something like tipping points on ITV or something like that at, at the lighter end. Uh, Mastermind is one of the more intellectual shows, isn't it? I would suppose to say quiz shows. Mm. Perhaps only Connect is the hardest on TV, but um, but but Mastermind is certainly seen as a serious quiz show. And perhaps perhaps it's good to have that balance. It almost feels like half of the show can be people showing off about. I mean, we're all show offs, aren't we? People that want to do this, but people kind of demonstrating 
what's interesting to them and what what their kind of specialist knowledge is and what makes them sort of special in a way to use that phrase what makes what makes them really good at an academic kind of learning something or having expertise in something and you know unlike unlike our old friend Michael Gove from this podcast I don't think people <laughs> have had enough of experts and it can be quite impressive to see someone mm. that knows a lot about something that I don't I do find that quite interesting and then of course the payoff to that the viewer is then rewarded by being able to shout along with the general knowledge round which is which is you know obviously far easier for a viewer to engage with so actually personally I quite like the balance I think it works quite well because it, it, it gets a line between it being a more serious intellectual quiz show which people that are really good can go on but equally something that we can engage with as viewers too. Related to that and particularly about the general knowledge around it's got kind of leads me on to the smart Alex on social media who think yes. they could do better than the participants and it always amuses mm. me because it's easy slouching on the sofa at home but yes. try answering the questions as you'll know only too well when yes. you, you know perhaps your mind goes blank under the stress yes. of the studio oh, lights uh, the exactly. time pressure the, the knowledge that your performance will be seen by millions of people exactly exactly but, that's a big deal when I was on uh, radio two on the on the Ryland quiz mm. there was one week I mean mostly I was pretty good but there was one week where the stress of the situation Situation nearly caused me to not recognize the description of the film The Silence of the Lambs, which mm. is pretty big, isn't it? And I said to him when we were and we were sort of laughing, I can't believe I've nearly forgot the phrase The Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Because when you are under that stress, it is I mean, so one of my pals um who got to the final of Mastermind, I think it was last year, 2021, I'm losing track of time is a brilliant, a lovely woman and a brilliant, brilliant quizzer, one of the best quizzers I know. And she failed to recognise the moon being described. Mm, and as a result sure. of which, and it visibly threw her, she got the next one or two wrong, which I knew that she knew because I've, I've played with her before mm. and she's great. And so even brilliant quizzers like that, you know, she's, she's known on TV quizzes. Anybody that watched quizzes will know who my pal is, mm. um, is, is, you know, it, it just goes to show that the pressure of those situations and people that are always quick to tell you, oh, I knew that answer. Um, so people, you know, mm. I had older people that said, oh, I would have got that answer right. Yeah, but would you have got all the other answers right in that situation where and also we were filming in, pro, in COVID protocol times. So I sat and had to do my own makeup, which, you know, yes, that first world problem, I know. <laughs> but um, but <laughs> I found I found the makeup and the appearance aspects of TV the most stressful of all of it. Just ask me questions about mm. about politics. Don't make me have to wear something that doesn't clash with the set <laughs> in my own makeup so uh, so yeah I think people like you say very much underestimate the stress of those situations uh, well talking about that, that stress I, I can often I think I can often predict who's going to win mastermind each week by analyzing mm. in the first few minutes the breathing patterns of the contestants. yes oh interesting Holly the student this week who who you know as yes. I said there will be spoilers she won it yeah um strolled home this week and yes, she, she was the calmest she and was had never the slowest control, breathing was she? she was absolutely she was just she took everything as it came and absolutely she, and she, that, 
that yeah, must help, mustn't it? Because yeah. you see sometimes people really struggling yeah, with their exactly. breathing, they're really hyper breathing and trying to and hide it. Yeah, exactly. And it must it be was... distracting when you're being asked yeah. the questions. You're sort of thinking, oh my God, my heart, slow down. Exactly. My, my breathing, slow down. Um, and you, you, know, the... you have to, you have to, you have to be able to be still on those things. Yeah. And one thing that was interesting that, again, it sounds self-aggrandizing. I don't mean it to, but a lot of people that know me and know my kind of energy and know know who I am as a person, mm. know that obviously I'm quite energetic lots of people got in touch with me say they'd enjoyed eggheads which was very kind of them and, and my mum said particularly who is you know everyone's biggest critic is the people that mm. love them the most aren't they said she said you were very still we were very impressed by how still you were and actually I think if you can stay calm in those situations and having that calmness about you and maybe it's easier to do so the the audition process for mastermind is 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 quite rigorous so they you do get have to do several general knowledge rounds before you get on so they really do test that people have the knowledge so most people that go on there will have the level of knowledge you need to get on there and how if you've got more knowledge and those are the people that tend to do well but it's also how you manage the pressure and I think you're absolutely right on that that people respond to pressure in different ways and Holly won it because she was incredibly calm I felt for the man who, yes. who, who unfortunately Holly seemed to get the rule of quizzing and the rule of anything I think really uh, if you're doing anything time sensitive and you think you don't know it you just move on and this yes. man tried to pull a name yes. that, and I felt for him because the name he pulled was the same had the same number of syllables in it as the correct answer but wasn't the correct answer and he lost a lot of time and I think as well if you're spending ages trying to pull an answer and I've had this happen before in in slightly less pressure formats where you get 30 seconds to give an answer I have used all of my time to pull an answer before and when you do get it right the Philip that that gives you and the the kind of the the sort of the confidence booster that that gives you pushes you through the rest of the game equally if you spend 23 seconds trying to remember something that isn't right it's gutting it's absolutely gutting and I think unfortunately that chap spent ages pulling an answer that wasn't right and I think it rather pushed him off and actually this is why those of us that do like quiz that do get involved in not addictive, but there is, you know, there are dopamine hits in this, which is why mm. we do it. I can't say there aren't. Mm. It's not just similar to sport. And anything you do that has a, you know, that has a winner or a loser has that same kind of um, same kind of mm. vibe to it. And it is it's a, it's a head game. And that's what is what I find so interesting about quiz. It's a head game in two senses. You're using the knowledge part of your brain. And you're also using the sort of temperamental part of your brain. You're using it's a psychology thing as much as it is anything else. And the people that do very well in quiz are often people that have incredible general knowledge. They're also people that have incredible temperament. Mastermind. It's on BBC Two mm. on Mondays and on the BBC iPlayer. And it's worth it just to see Clive, who is lovely. Yes. Coming right up, we say hooray for Ian Brody, and mm. also hooray for Trevor Horn. All right, for everyone. <laughs> there is next after the lightning scene.
a lovely song with genuinely poetic lyrics from the summer of 1989. um, Number 16 in the UK, 31 in the States, The Lightning Seeds and Pure. I mean, that is one of the most glorious pop songs, isn't it? And uh, and so I have a, an album. We call it Album Listening Club. Me and a good pal of mine called Ed. I think I've spoken about this on the podcast mm. before. Apologies, but it's relevant here. Um, We did a lot of Tim Burgess's album listening parties together. He lives up north and I live down here. And that was a way that we would use to keep in touch during the, the first lockdown. And... You know, he, I, I, as I think I said previously, I didn't have the easiest of experiences in the first lockdown. I was quite isolated, and and Ed very much took the time to to do that with me, and that was that was great. And after they sort of not unreasonably for Tim Burgess, who gave a lot of time to that early on, and I think gave a great account of himself as a result. I genuinely seemed to care about running those, and it was just it was a really mm. lovely thing. Him and Sophie Ellis Baxter were my light entertainment heroes of the first lockdown, I must <laughs> admit. But um, he and they 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 did they brought a lot of joy to people by doing something that didn't. I know that they perhaps have had enhanced careers as a result of it now, but didn't ultimately have a have an obvious monetization to it at the time. And they just did it, I think, out of sort of humane reasons. And I re- I really love that. Um, Tim Burgess did these album listening parties on, on Twitter where you would sort of tweet along. He'd get someone involved in the making of album to tweet about it and you'd use the hashtag. So once they sort of calmed down a bit, we decided we would start our own. So we, do, we, we take it in turns to choose an album. And we're on our second season of doing this, our mm. second year in which we decided that we would do A to Z so we would take it in turns mm. to pick an album by each person and we ordinarily pick a like an, like a, a, an album rather than a compilation mm. we made an exception um, when the Lionesses won won the Euros yeah. this year Ed decided that he would like to pick the best of the lightning seeds mm. for his L week so that we could listen to Three Lions essentially but I found my copy this is how long ago this came out Terence I had my copy mm. on tape that I got yeah. from when I was still in secondary school and we, we sat and listened to it and they were just so good they were such a good singles band they're, banger they're, after they're, banger I mean absolutely and and not just banger after banger but really well thought through yeah. melodic and like you say the lyrics to this Often are so very good. poetic yes genuinely absolutely poetic. There, there's mm-hmm. a genuine depth there's an unexpected de- depth I mean a change by the lightning seeds as I think got a, got a real they often have a real melancholy behind their driving pop mm-hmm. and I, I think that they are so underrated he I I mean, I say they, it's essentially him. And, and, and you know, so they started off as a band. One that's in started off as a band. The original band members kind of drifted off and then it's just become a bit like the Divine Comedy with Neil, Neil Hannon. It's just his, really. But, um, I, I, yeah, big, big fan, I think, it's and that, of that song particularly, but, but the Lightning Seeds singles output in general. Quick question for you, and I think you'll mm. get this right. Quick quiz question. Go on. Only one other single in their history, uh, Pure made number 31 in the States, only one other single in their history has made the Billboard Hot 100. What was it? You'll Ooh. get it. No, I don't think I will. Um... <sighs> you, you've picked it for the podcast m- many years ago. I was checking the other day. Was so it t- change? It was The Life of Riley. Oh! Of course, that is a. Gr- I mean, uh, we were we were unfortunately slightly tarnished by the dreadful BBC sitcom starring Caroline Quentin that that had that as its as its uh. theme a few years ago. But no, it's uh, again, it's it's my friend always and um, who bless her is is sort of tries to. She's always interested in my music. She's she's quite a, a posh lawyer somewhere. And bless her, she's really sweet and she tries to be interested in the music I do. And she her husband is a very big football fan. And again, she's one of these people that just tries to take interest in the interest of the people that that she 
loves. And uh, she said to me, "Ah, oh, yes, the Lightning Seeds. Are they the goal of the month band? No, and she's this. right. They mm. always get their music mm. used. And the Rye for Riley was used as goal of the month or match of the day or football focus, one of those two. Um for ages and i think something else pure might have been used as well mm. i mean they, they are they are one of those bands that just musically give them so that's why it's so interesting that their lyrics are so poetic because their music is really commercial isn't it it's really yeah. sort of loved of of producers of tv programs everywhere that need backing music it's quite interesting because live o'reilly was the only other one made the billboard hot 100 and he got to number 98 and this mm. is all quite a contrast with the uk because they've had oh, yes. eight, 18 hit singles in the UK, mm. none bigger, of course, than the football song uh, Three yes. Lions. Which it's, that's reached number one in the UK three times and no doubt and the, will emerge once oh, more next month. It's timeless, that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's always got a, it's got a oh, history absolutely. to it that is so great. And how delightful that it was the women that won and, and, and that yes. song was sort of co-opted. That was great. The, and, and the excellent performance of it by the, the women's squad gate crashing the, yeah. uh, the press conference as well. The definitive performance of that tune. As you say, it's really really a pseudonym for Ian uh, Brody, who writes, yes. plays and sings Esther Lightning Seeds. And they have a new album out, which has led to some mm. interviews in the press this week. And it is clear, uh, Jules, that he sees Three Lions as something of a millstone round his neck. Yes, I'm not. I, I have si- far more yeah, than I have however many years sympathy. of hurt. Yeah, I have said I say I have sympathy. Having said that, I suspect he's done quite well out of it financially. But equally, mm. I do get if you are an artist, I do get that there is a real contradiction and a real kind of a mm. dilemma as to, to what extent you embrace that. By the way, he's another person with his son in the band. His, his son oh, is called Riley. Um, that's yes. what the song was about. And his, oh, his son Riley plays rhythm guitar in the Lightning Seeds. I love that. That's <laughs> that's really lovely. I think I'm quite I'm quite keen on that as a sort of. Yeah. I like the idea that the family business is the Lightning Seeds. <laughs> that's that's Absolutely. really cool. I think they're um, the thing about the Lightning Seeds. So, so I've also I'd sorry if I'm cutting you off, but but I've also skimmed this album and. The thing that I quite like about them is that is that the album is is quite good. You wouldn't say instantly, "Oh, this is an instant classic." No. Having said that, Ian Broody has it's like lots of these these people that that sort of write that continue to to write music for years and years and years, and that their level of talent is such that they can just churn out stuff that is quite good forever. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and yes, that that I didn't instantly hear something that would I would have slotted onto the greatest hits that I like so much. Having said that. It's a, it's pretty good, isn't it? And I think mm. there's a lot to be said for people that can continue to release music for years and years on end, even if it isn't. It's consistency, isn't it? So even if it isn't all like the Beatles, for example, if the Beatles have kept going for years and years and years, they might have fallen into the same pattern where they might not have been able to quite touch the, 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 the mark of their early work. But they would continue to produce stuff that was pretty good quality. And I, I'm quite keen. I like the fact that there that, that you there is still, despite the the different complexion of the music business and despite, you know, as we talked previously on the podcast, the difficulty of getting income streams because of ironically streaming, amongst other things, and then touring becoming the cash cow and then COVID causing problems with that. I like the fact that there is still, if you have the talent and and the particular public facing talent, you can still forge your career being really pretty good. And I, and I like that. I quite like, I Mm. quite like that as as an idea that as long as your consistency produced stuff that is, you know, interesting and pleasant to listen to, which that album very much was pleasant to listen to. I quite, I, I admire that. I admire, I admire people that can consistently be 7.5 out of 10. 
Speaking of young Riley Brody, I thought, mm. well, I'll find out a little bit more about him. And I thought, you know, mm. okay. he, yeah. how old is he and this sort of thing. And I did a little tiny bit of research during the week. And it turns out he's a, a very good looking young man. And yeah, um, he does some modelling for menswear. You oh, know, interesting. Uh, yeah. Companies in the UK. And one of them did a YouTube sort of promotional video with him being photographed and posing in various uh, of their clothing all around Liverpool. Yes. And interviewing at the same time. What a lovely young chap. He came oh, across nice. so wonderfully well and so, so much love for his family and his dad and him. his uncle good and how him. he goes to see Liverpool every week with his dad oh, and everything. Right. Really lovely young man. So that was uh, really good to see. That's um, lovely. That sounds that. So I will try and check that out because I always enjoy people being nice. Like, do you remember when we watched Brooklyn Beckham's TV? Yes, show? yes. And we were quite surprised for all of his famous kid yes, thing. Yes. We were surprised at how nice he was. So I'm very yes. keen on particularly young men, t- t- sort of sons of famous people who could really be entitled brats yes. being very lovely. I no, mean, we wish them well. Chap. Somebody else, and he's got a book out this week, who also mm. brings joy just by producing great music is Trevor yes. Horn. Mm. And the the book is called Adventures in Modern Recording from ABC to ZTT. Yeah. And it's it's his story told through 23 essays about mm. 23 of the songs he's been involved in. This sounds and good. I haven't read this yet. It sounds fantastic. No, I haven't read it yet. No, mm. the, the book stops perhaps abruptly um, in... <laughs> 2004 and that reflects his family's life would never be the same again after his wife jill um died at home in incredibly tragic circumstances oh, i'm so sorry to hear that oh it, 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 do you not know mm. the story no i don't oh well I'll, you know people would look it up anyway i'll say unfortunately one of their children with a son aaron was um fiddling with an air rifle in the garden oh no and oh. shot Jill in the neck. That's and, horrible. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. How dreadful for she everybody. She was in a coma for many years and then died a few years ago. Never recovered. Um, so they've had an awful lot to deal with. But musically, Trevor Horn has a wonderful legacy. And I'd say, Jules, that he's created his own sound because just as there was the Phil Spector sound mm. in the 60s, I'd say the 1980s belonged to Trevor Horn. Yes, very much agree. I mean, his influence has been sort of spread wide, far and wide. Interestingly, so I think this is a, this is a sort of nice summary of how Trevor Horn's got a sound that can be many things to many different people. People that cite him as an influence include Gary Barlow. He'd say is pretty mainstream as a as, mm. a, as a you know sort of a pop artist and great songwriter. The producer Nigel Godrich, who is famous for oh, producing yeah. Radiohead, perhaps most yeah. famously OK Computer. He'd say is quite interesting. You know, it's a step away from it's still rock a step away from Gary Barlow and the musician DJ Shadow all three of those people who are very different people very different artists all cite Trevor Horn as a big mm. influence which I find really interesting um it's um it, he started off in a in a tenure in Ray McVeigh's big band as a session <laughs> musician um he performed um on cu- the original Come Dancing on BBC One before it became Trevor Horn before it became Yes, he was in Good he was in grief. Ray McVeigh's orchestra. Yes, he was a session musician. Um, they he was in Ray McVeigh's big band. <laughs> they performed at the World Ballroom no Dancing Championships and the television show Come Dancing. Um, <laughs> he he then and, and and so Trevor Horn became a producer at the age of twenty four. He started. Um, he he assisted. Um, this is what's so interesting. This lost world of kind of 
you know opportunities i think for musicians so he set up his he was involved in in assisting in the construction of a studio in leicester at the age of 24 while playing the bass at bailey's club for seven nights a week for money so you think wow he then completed the studio and produced songs for amongst other clients leicester city fc so he's, he's doing interesting things he was in a covers band called northern lights again playing the bass in london in the, in the late 70s cover band which include Jeff Downs, who of course went on oh, to be Buckles. in Buggles, yeah. and the singer was uh, Tina Charles of My Love, oh, My Love, yes, you know, My Baby yes. Loves to Dance. Um, he also formed a jazz fusion band with Weather Report and Herbie Hancock. The uh, drummer of Shack Attack was in that as well. So he's really, <laughs> you know, in his early days, he did a lot of stuff that was really, really interesting. Um, mm. Obviously, perhaps if you asked most people what they knew Trevor Horn for, you'd probably say Art of Noise, wouldn't you, in terms of his mm. sort of production stuff, which spawned Dan Dudley, who went on to be a notable film composer, mm. composing for the Full Monty, amongst other things. Um, his first production hit, by the way, was Monkey Chop by Danny, which <laughs> got to number <laughs> 30 in the UK single chart. So he's I don't like, remember that at all. I'm no, exactly. And, and it's very interesting that you know someone who you'd say is quite cool trevor horn and actually even in the 80s was producing pop that was seen as a bit edgy i think and a bit cool um it started off life like a lot of people in, in of that era it did quite novelty things didn't they really or quite mainstream yes. things and then gradually sort of well, of course, how george martin started didn't yes, he with the exactly. goons and with comedy, the comedy records yeah. yeah absolutely um of course video called the radio star by buggles is perhaps his his sort of biggest calling card which Sounds quite. It's got the again. It's not dissimilar to Ian Broody and that, and and my sort of talk of change in that. It's actually really wistful that pop song. It's seen as a bit of a slight novelty, I think, in that it's got slightly silly voices on it, doesn't it? But it's 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 also. But it's also kind of pining back to a, a time that had kind of gone. The idea of video killing the radio star and, and the, 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 the world in which the come dancing light entertainment world in which he kind of grew up in pretty much gone by that point. And there is such a wistfulness about it. I think it's 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 a record that, like him, is of a pop sensibility, but has incredible depth to it and incredible melancholy to it. That it's That's the sort of reason why... That song will, is one of those songs that will live forever, I think. And I do play it out whilst DJing sometimes. And people are always delighted to hear it because it's it's such a joy. I was in a band doing, well, I still am. We haven't done anything for ages, but we used to cover that live. And it's it's there's something about mm. it that is just so, it's got such a such an emotional draw to people. So for all that Trevor Horn is, is very edgy and, and him and Anne Dudley did some very far-reaching things as Art of Noise, there's a real emotional intelligence to his work that I think gives it that kind of gives it that pull where otherwise it could have just been a little bit kind of BBC radiophonic workshop, couldn't it? I think as much as I love mm. them, it could have been very I know what you mean, yeah. been very intellectual. And actually there's an emotion to it that makes it so good. And again, him and Ian Broody very similar. I think we we many people would know Trevor Horn's work on Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Band Aid, yes, Seal, yeah. and as you say, The Art of Noise and so on. But I really like some of his production work with unexpected people like mm. Dollar and Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, 
My favourite Horn production, though, remains, and it has done for 40 years, The Lexicon of Love by ABC. Yes. And what this an is, album. What th- an album. Absolutely. And this is why I say the 80s belong to Trevor Horn, in that I yes. can still remember that sort of whoosh of amazement at hearing The Look of Love, All of My Heart. I mean, The Look of Love. You, I could talk mm. for half an hour about mm. how great The Look of Love is. Everything about that is, is I mean, sorry to interrupt your flow, but just to give mm. this one point... If you would like to learn a little bit more about Trevor Horn and ZTT in the context of the 80s, particularly the early 80s, I would recommend Simon Reynolds' excellent book, Rip It Up and Start Again, The History of UK Post-Punk, 77 to 84, which means we move past the kind of, you know, sort of Leeds DIY scene of post-punk and PIL and stuff like that. And we do get to, to meet Trevor Horn. And he tells this lovely story about them producing The Look of Love with ABC. And there is a bit in, in The Look of Love where Martin Fry sings, uh, when your woman leaves you out on the pavement and a female voice says goodbye at that mm. exact moment. It's that is done. That is the ex-girlfriend of Martin Fry. They had split up um. five years previously. And because we lived in a pre-internet age, well, some time was spent, I think it would have been Sheffield, ringing around Sheffield to try and find her. And they found her. And much well, to her great credit, she agreed to go into the studio and they paid her to say goodbye. And and that is her. That is her. And that, well, that I, me, I did not it's, know that. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a combination of production brilliance that is also really fun. And just, you know, who goes to those lengths in those days to find someone that Martin Fry went out with for a few weeks, five years ago, to say goodbye on a record? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's I just I love it I'd absolutely love it but sorry yes carry on but I thought that was oh no, no it's just, uh, you're right it's pure pop music um but produced with such fizz and pizzazz yes and Ilan yes absolutely exactly uh a beautiful record that sounded breathtaking in 1982 still zips like a firework today I mean the look of love is is just you know I I I wish that bit different this week now because it's just it's Mm. every moment of that is is um and the way that it finishes on this kind of firework explosion and him Mm. going yippee ki you just get this (laughs) sense of abandonment by the end and and the brilliant spoke word section that he goes into with you know, people say to me Martin and it's just it's it, it's it's a gleeful record I'm grinning from ear to ear just thinking about that song it's wonderful so it's hooray for Ian Brody and Trevor Horn yes oh power to them thank you for being with us this week wherever you may be li- uh, listening absolutely wherever you are but, but you go may you go with our high high esteem exactly. of you um, now, talking about bringing cheer and joy into people's <laughs> lives, Juliet's on the radio this weekend. Oh, yeah, you know, to some extent, I think that's what I do. Yes, you can find me on uh, on Noisebox Radio from 7 to 9 p.m. Sunday evenings doing smooth sailing, which is a, a, a nice way to kind of shake off one week and get ready to, to, to face another. Um, Yacht Rock, easy listening, M-O-R, A-O-R, classic pop, stuff that is relaxing and uplifting. And if you miss a show, you can catch up on our mix cloud channel if you go to mix cloud and search noise box radio all of the excellent shows from the station are on that including smooth sailings passim um jules a track from an album called hyperdimensional expansion beam <laughs> indeed wait where are you going come back <laughs> but, uh, but, yes perhaps at the other end of the pop scale this but um I've, there's been some really interesting young british i would say jazz 
jazz produced in the last few years that very much looks to other genres as well. So sort of electronic genres, rock genres, and a lot of it. I mean, we, we've spoken previously about my love of instrumentals and your non-love of instrumentals, mm. but you always make the good point that it has to do something interesting mm. to kind of hold you. And I think that stuff like this very much does. It's by an outfit called The Comet Is Coming. Um, a chap called Hutchings um, is is involved in, in doing them. And he is... Um, He's also behind Sons of Kemet, who are another excellent sort of band that are crossing genres. I think I might have picked them for the podcast mm. previously. The mm. Comet is coming, have a new album out. And I cannot stop listening to it. And particularly this song, which I think is is really joyful. Um, there are, I don't think there is enough modern jazz that you could probably plausibly do the conga to. And I think you probably could <laughs> to this. It's, it's It really does spark joy in me. And I hope it will spark joy in you, or at least non-opposition in you, in the case of people like Terence, who are slightly allergic to instrumentals. Uh, this is The Comet Is Coming, and uh, this is Pyramids.
been listening to a Parish Council production.